evidence and answers. Many Christians find prophecy in the scriptures hard to understand and difficult to interpret, and so they avoid it. But since so much of what we read in the Bible involves prophecy, what do we do? To help us with this, Dr. Ron Rhodes has come out with a new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Dr. Ron Rhodes and discuss his new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. This book offers answers to some of the most common questions concerning prophecies in the Bible. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat with part one of this message. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. While the events in the Middle East and around the world arise our awareness of Bible prophecy. However, there's a lot of confusion about Bible prophecy. How do we interpret Bible prophecy? The events of today, how do they fit in to biblical prophecy? Well, to help us address these issues is Dr. Ron Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes is the president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministry and author of over 70 books, a keynote speaker at several conferences throughout the United States, a favorite here in Hawaii, regularly addresses current issues in the national media. Dr. Rhodes received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's written a recent book on this topic along with several others on this topic, but he's written a recent book on it called The Bible Prophecy Answer Book. So, Ron, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you. Always good to be with you. Ron, tell us a little bit about this book, The Bible Prophecy Answer Book. Why did you write this one? Well, for several reasons. I think to begin with, people naturally have a lot of questions about Bible prophecy, and it seems like wherever I go, someone comes up and asks questions about one topic or another as related to Bible prophecy. And so I decided to put together a single book that covers the majority of questions, if not all the questions that people typically ask. And you may know that I've written a number of prophecy books that deal with specific topics, you know, like uh, the Antichrist, for example. I've got a book on the eight great debates of Bible prophecy or the chronology of the end times. But what I did in this one single book about Bible answers is to put in one book all the common questions from all the different topics related to biblical prophecy. And so I think in that way, it's kind of a helpful guide. And then secondly, I think that prophecy has tremendous apologetics value. You know, only God knows the end from the beginning. And so it's a good apologetic to defend the true doctrine of God. It's a great way of defending the truth of the Bible and that the Bible really is the Word of God. Because, again, only God knows the future and no no other holy book contains those kind of prophecies. And then finally, I think it's a great apologetic in defending the truth about Jesus because Jesus is at the very heart of Bible prophecy both in his first coming and in his second coming. Yes, Ron, you talked about apologetics and prophecy, and I know that when I'm speaking on the inspiration of the Bible, the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, when I'm in, especially in front of non-Christian audiences, the evidence from biblical prophecy is some of the most powerful when it comes to defending the inspiration of the Bible, because there's really no other book that has the legacy of prophecy as the Bible, the Quran the Bhagavad Gita, the Lotus Sutra. There's really no book that has that legacy of prophecy as the Bible. Isn't that right? 
Well, I think you're right there. And in fact, that was one of the contributing factors to my becoming a Christian in the first place. I had actually grown up in a liberal church. And in that liberal church, they never talked about Bible prophecy. And their viewpoint was the Bible was inspired like Shakespeare is inspired. That is to say, it's inspiring to read. But it's still a human book, according to them. So lo and behold, when I started to hear about Bible prophecy, it was a real awakening for me because for the first time in my life, I came to believe that the Bible really was the Word of God and not just the Word of man. And so that played a uh, key role in my becoming a Christian way back in the 70s. And, you know, I talked about the apologetic value of Bible prophecy. I think Bible prophecy also serves in pre-evangelism. You know, it can set the stage for sharing other truths about the gospel and about the Bible and so forth. And so, like I said, I think it's an extremely important topic. And given the fact that over 25 percent, it's actually 27 percent of the Bible was prophetic when originally written, that's too much of the Bible to ignore. I know a lot of people today say, well, you know, I'm going to study everything else except Bible prophecy, but you can't ignore one-fourth of the Bible. God tells us that he wants to understand the whole counsel of God, including all that he says about the future. Yes, you know, and when we talk about Bible prophecy, one of the unique attributes is that those that are inspired by God, the prophets and the apostles, when they made prophecies, they had to be 100% accurate. They had to bat a thousand. And that is significant because, I mean, if God can see the future perfectly, then what he would say about the future must be true 100% of the time. Expound on that a little bit. Well, I think you're right. And I think that point is critically important, especially for today. And the reason why I say that is that there are some segments of Christianity which teach that there are prophets today who can make mistakes biblical prophets who can make mistakes. And the reason they say that is that the New Testament tells us to test the prophets. So their reasoning is, is that we should test the prophets to see if a true prophet is given a true prophecy or a false prophecy. However, that's a misunderstanding of the New Testament teaching. Actually, we are to test the prophets to see whether the person is a true prophet or a false prophet to begin with, because true prophets don't make mistakes. And the reason why true prophets don't make mistakes is that they're speaking the thus saith the Lord revelations from God. And we know that God doesn't make mistakes. And so because the prophets speak forth for God, just as the apostles do in the New Testament, we know that what they say is uh, completely true. And of course, what we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a recording of all of those things that God wanted us to know from the prophets and the apostles. And it's interesting, Pat, that God himself was the one that instructed that these things be written. For example, God commanded to Moses to write down what God revealed to him. God revealed to Isaiah to write down the things that were revealed to him. God told John in Revelation 1.19 to write down the things that God was revealing to him. The reason why God wants all this recorded is because he wanted this same word that went out to the original people in Bible times to be available to people in every generation after that. And so that's why the Bible is so important to us today. Now, Ron, what's the difference between biblical prophecy, the nature of biblical prophecy and prophecies that we hear today? And when people come up and say, I have a prophecy for you, how do we approach that? I mean, well, that's a good question. First of all, let's recognize that the prophets and the apostles, strictly speaking, are completely unique. And we don't have Bible prophets and apostles today like we had in Bible times. And the reason I say that, among other things, is that we're told in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. 
And once the foundation is built, we don't build it again. Rather, we build upon it. There's one foundation based upon the prophets and the apostles. And ever since that foundation was built, we are building upon it. Secondly, we know from the book of Revelation that the names of the, like the 12 apostles, for an example, are engraved on the New Jerusalem. You know, so they're totally unique. And that means that we don't have apostles today in the same sense that the New Testament apostles are. And the reason I make that point is that today the terms prophet and apostle are loosely used sometimes to refer to people that go forth in missionary work or people that are sent out. And then in other times, there are certain segments of Christianity that believe in uh, modern prophecies. And one of the reasons they talk about that is that they believe that all of the spiritual gifts are available for all time. And as you know, that's a debated topic. Are the sign gifts still available today? One view says yes, and it's mostly charismatics that would believe that. The other view says that stuff like tongues and prophecies and so forth has passed away, and that's cessationism. And I suspect this debate will probably go on up until the Lord comes. The key thing, though, that I like to emphasize to people, no matter what camp they're in, is to test all things against Scripture. Because if you test all things against Scripture, that's the thing that's going to keep you on track. If I hear somebody in a church say something, I'm going to test that against Scripture to make sure it's true. And likewise, when people listen to me, for example, on today's radio show, I want them to test everything I say against Scripture because Scripture is our authority. Yes, you know, a lot of people that say they have a word from the Lord or are giving prophecy, often I find it to be very, you know, vague and very general in the prophecy that they're giving. When it comes to biblical prophecy, the prophets and the apostles, when they prophesy, it's pretty specific, isn't it, the things that they are prophesying about? Well, yes. I mean, you can see this, for example, illustrated in the prophecies of the first coming of Christ. For example, we're told that Christ would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. We are told that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. That he would come from the line of Abraham, uh, Genesis 12. And from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. And that he would be pierced for our sins, Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12:10. I mean, I could go on and on. There's over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament speaking about the first coming of Christ, and they were very specific. And not only were they very specific, but they were specifically and literally fulfilled. And I think that gives us an insight in how to interpret the prophecies regarding the second coming. Because if you want to know how God's going to fulfill prophecy in the future, your best policy is to look at how God has fulfilled prophecy in the past. And if God has fulfilled prophecy in the past, then he's likely going to do the same thing in regard to all the second coming prophecies. And so, again, that's one of the reasons why I take biblical prophecy of the second coming and all the events that lead up to it so seriously. Yes. Now, God is able to see the future perfectly. I mean, you know, what is God's relationship to time? You explain that a little bit in your book. Well, that's a great question. You know, there's a lot of people who have assumed that the word time or the existence of time is eternal, that it's always been there. My personal view is that time is part of the creation itself. And Augustine was one of the people that came up with this idea that at the time of the creation, that's when time actually came into being. And one of the things that helps us to understand why that's the case is that certain verses in the New Testament speak about literally the ages that were created by God. And if God is the one that created the ages, 
then that seems to indicate that time itself is part of the created universe. You know, uh, Hebrews 1-2 is a very good example. The Father has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now that phrase, created the world, is literally created the ages. So again, I think that time itself is a part of the created reality, and God is outside of that created reality. And that's why we say that time is intuitive to God. The past, present, and future are intuitively present to God. He can see the future just as clearly as he can see the present and the past. And so I think the best way to put it is that God transcends time. He is above the space-time universe. Now, that's kind of a lofty idea, and maybe some of our listeners aren't quite sure about what all that means. But the key thing is, is that God is not bound by time like you and I are. You and I are kind of like a little vapor that appears for a short time, and then we pass away. Our lives are so short. But God is eternal. And as an eternal being, God is completely outside of the time realm so that he can see all things perfectly clearly, including the future. I think that's a great point that you bring up, that God transcends time, because there's a popular teaching now that God is in time, and therefore he really cannot know the future. The future is developing. He's in a battle against the forces of evil, and whether he'll win or not, you know, he needs our help in prayer to help him defeat evil, and it's developing. He really cannot see the future. That's what I was taught in college, and it's still around to this day. Well, you know, there's all kind of strange ideas floating around out there. You know, there's this idea also that God knows everything that can be known at the present. You know, like he knows everything that is presently taking place, no matter where it is in the universe, but he does not know the future contingent decisions of individuals. For example, the terrorists that flew into the the Twin Towers on 9-11, you know, that took God by surprise. He didn't see that coming. Mm. You see, wow. that's that's the idea that some of these guys talk about. And another idea they have is that in terms of God being omnipresent, they say that God is not really omnipresent. He's not really everywhere present in the universe. Rather, he is everywhere where he chooses to be. Now, wait a minute, Pat. I am wherever I choose to be, too. <laughs> when you think about it, that's sort of a diminishing view of God. And, you know, earlier I mentioned to you the importance of testing all things against Scripture. Well, when you test those kinds of ideas against Scripture, they fall short. Because I believe that the omnipresence of God means that He literally is everywhere present. And it's not limited in any way. And likewise, when we talk about God's omniscience, it doesn't just mean that God knows everything that's happening at this moment, but doesn't know the future. I think that God sees the future just as clearly as He sees the present. And that's why He has a 100% correct track record in terms of foretelling the future. You know, Pat, what are the odds of the over 100 Messianic prophecies coming to pass in one person, Jesus Christ? What are the odds? I mean, it's impossible that that just happened by accident. Yeah, that theology you're talking about, uh, when I was learning it, I think it was called process theology. Is that what it's still called today? Yeah, it's process theology, and there's also an idea that's kind of related to that called open theism. You know, these ideas are sometimes used as a means of explaining the problem of evil. For example, there are some within this movement that say that God is not all-powerful. You know, he doesn't like evil when it happens in the world, but he's just not strong enough to stand against it. 
Or when something terrible happens like 9-11, God just didn't see it coming, and God tries to work to lure people into good behavior, but sometimes he's not strong enough you know, to do all of that. Now, that diminishes God. That diminishes God. I think it's very clear that God does know the future and that he is all-powerful. And he knows the things that happen, even the free will contingent decisions of human beings. You know, one example is John thirteen thirty eight, where Jesus told Peter that before the cock crowed, Peter would disown Jesus three times. And notice the specificity there. He didn't say that Peter would just disown him. He said that Peter would disown him three times before the cock crowed. And, of course, Christ was exactly right on that. There's one example after another that I could give you that, that illustrates the same thing, and that is that God is all-powerful and he knows the future. Now, Ron, there are four ways that the church has historically interpreted the book of Revelation, and you go through this in your book, but they're the preterist, idealist, historicist, and futurist view. Explain those schools briefly. Well, the historicist approach to the book of Revelation basically says that the book of Revelation provides sort of a panoramic sweep of church history from the first century all the way through the second coming of Christ. And so, you know, there's been a lot of subjective uh, interpretations in this kind of uh, idea. Generally, people living in each age, whether it's our age or back in the Reformation period, very often people will see things in their own century as being pertinent to the book of Revelation. You know, one example would be how people back during the Reformation thought that the uh, papacy, the Roman Catholic papacy, was the Antichrist. You know, so I mean, that's one example of people interpreting the events of their own time as a fulfillment of something in the book of Revelation. So a historicist would believe we're in the book of Revelation right now, maybe chapter 16 or somewhere around there? Well, they would. They would. And, you know, they uh, would typically say that there are at least one of them that was so influential back in the uh, 12th century, divided history into three primary ages. Like I said, the Reformers were attracted to this model and believed that the Catholic Pope was the Antichrist. But today we progress along to maybe chapter 16, 17. The thing of it is, though, that when you look at the book of Revelation, there's actually very specific time clues. And those time clues don't make much sense in this kind of a historicist approach, because history from the first century all the way up to the second coming is very long. But, for example, in chapters 11 and 12, you find various references to three and a half years, which is half the tribulation period. You see reference to, for example, 1260 days. You see a reference to time, times, and half a time, which is a Jewish way of describing three and a half years. You see in chapter 4, reference to John to write things that happened after this. You know, there are specific time clues, which uh, I think don't make much sense in this historicist position. Now, by contrast, is the idealist approach to the book of Revelation. And this basically says that the book of Revelation is kind of nonspecific. You can't interpret the persons and the events literally or specifically, but rather this is kind of a general and symbolic description of the ongoing battle between God and the devil, between good and evil. Now again, how do you work the time parameters into a situation like that? You know, in the book of Revelation, we do find that there are certain symbols mentioned, but those symbols are always defined quite literally. You know, for example, the seven lampstands are defined to be the seven churches. The bowl of incense is defined to be the prayers that go up to the saints. And the reason I bring this up, Pat, is that by 
understanding those symbols and their literal meanings, we can construct from the beginning of Revelation to the end of Revelation a logical and coherent system of eschatology or prophecy. For example, if you just read it straight through, chapters 4 through 18 deal with the tribulation period. In chapter 19, we see the second coming of Christ. In chapter 20, we see the millennial kingdom. In chapters 21 and 22, we see the eternal state. And you've got time clues mentioned all throughout, which give us a a good understanding of the proper chronology of all of this. And so that just kind of does away with the idealist approach as far as I'm concerned. You know, the book of Revelation becomes kind of irrelevant, in my view, if it's just an idealist kind of a book. Now, what about the futurist approach? Uh, Pat, do you know any futurists? Yes. I, <laughs> those of us who interpret it literally. Yeah, well, I was talking about camp. you and me and quite a few others yes. are futurists. And I think that that makes the best sense of the book. You know, the book does claim to be prophecy right there in Revelation 1, verse 3, and again in chapter 22. And, you know, we see a little bit of an outline of the book in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 19 where the Lord tells John to write the things that he has just seen and the things that presently are and the things that will take place after this. Well, when the Lord tells John to write the things that will take place after this, he's talking about the prophetic future. And that prophetic future begins in chapter 4 of Revelation. That's when the tribulation period begins, you see, and that's yet future. This period hasn't begun yet. It's a future day of wrath, a time of wrath, as the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 9 and 10. Prophet Daniel, back in Daniel 9, 27, indicated that this seven-year period is equivalent to the period described in Revelation 4 through really the first part of chapter 19, you know, the tribulation period. And so, uh, to me, when the uh, plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up in nonsense. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when you take right. it pretty it's straightforward, it makes a great deal of sense. Now, one that's gaining a lot of popularity, again, is the preterist view, which pretty much says the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 A.D., Tell us, well, uh, that's right. And, uh, you know, as I talk about in the book, there's actually two forms of preterism. Actually, the word preterism comes from a Latin term, preter, which means past. And so that's why this is a viewpoint that says that most of the prophecies have already taken place in the past. And of these two forms, you've got moderate preterism. And this is a viewpoint that's represented by quite a few people today who believe that almost all the prophecies were fulfilled in the past, except for the resurrection and the second coming, which is yet future. But everything else has been fulfilled in the past. You know, when you look at Revelation 4 through the first part of 19, for example, all of that was fulfilled when Titus and his Roman warriors overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, according to this viewpoint. And then full preterism goes so far as to say that every prophecy was fulfilled, including the resurrection and the second coming. Obviously, there's a great deal of debate that's going on today I personally believe that preterism has a great deal of, uh, you know, problems to deal with. You know, for example, the book of Revelation starts out right at the beginning by claiming to be a prophecy in Revelation 1, verse 3, and, and the prophecy refers to the future. Also, when you look at it, many of the key events that are described in the book of Revelation simply did not occur back in A.D. 70. For example, we read about how, um, you know, a, a third of mankind is killed during the tribulation period. Well, that didn't happen A.D. 70. 
We read about 200 million soldiers. You see, the soldiers are demonic spirits, depending upon what interpreter you listen to, who come from the East and overrun humanity, and that didn't happen. And what about this prophecy that every living thing died that was in the sea? That's in Revelation 16, verse 3. Well, that didn't happen. Now, I could go on and on. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you including Pat's articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. Right, 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 right.